Gracious Lord, we ask that you would teach us more of your truths, more of your ways, more of your grace. Help us to know, receive, experience, and share more of your love in this world. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's, it's after midnight on Thursday, or Friday morning if you want to be really technical. And Jesus has been in the garden. And where we are is he's been betrayed, and now the guards have arrived, and Jesus has been apprehended. Meanwhile, all those who were welcoming him on Sunday, celebrating him coming in, calling him the Messiah and everything else, they're all asleep, having done their own Passovers. The disciples who have followed Jesus for all these years have all fled, and now he's bound and uh, under the guards at this moment. That's kind of where we're picking up today. And if you're uh, new with us, in terms of what's been going on with this sermon series, we've been doing a sermon series where we've been looking at this last little bit of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross. And we go through it every year during um, Holy Week, but it's, it's super fast. And what we want to be doing in this series is trying to back up and look at it and see what we can learn and experience as we walk in this way in more detail. We looked on week one at the Last Supper and the depth that's involved in there. And then last week, Eric did a great sermon talking about the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus' time there alone. And then we're picking up right here today from that moment, right? So Jesus has been through all this. He's been caught, betrayed with the kiss. All that stuff is going on. And he's bound up. And now they start this march, right? They, they, Jesus starts at this place where he's seen this across the Kindred Valley, as Eric talked about last week, where the temple where he's been all week teaching. But now they've come in the middle of the night to grab him. And they're going to spend the next 20 minutes or so walking him back towards the city gates, back into the city, and ultimately to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. And it's really a palace, right? And there, they're going to call the Sanhedrin together, which we'll talk about in a minute what the Sanhedrin is. But they're going to call that group together. And while they bring Jesus in, um, they'll bring him to this place now. If you go visit, there's this church, St. Peter, the Galicantu, which is the crowing cock is basically the name of St. Peter the crowing cock, because that's the place where we heard in our reading today where he hears the crow for the second, or the... Um, he hears the cock crow for the second time, and he breaks down. All that's going on here. But they say that he, he was put down into this sort of prison cell that was made from a cistern. They're lowered down in there, and then he's going to be brought up into the grand room, which is, again, this is a palace where they're going to gather, and they're going to do these legal proceedings against him, right? And the Sanhedrin is the one that's going to pass on all this. And the Sanhedrin are these 71 um, folks that have been pulled together as the leaders. And this is drawing upon Numbers 11:16, where it talks about back when bringing the leadership together with 70 leaders to distribute the leadership. That's where the Sanhedrin comes from. They would have been in charge of the religious affairs of the society, the temple, the religious courts, all of this. That's what they're over. And they would have normally met during the day. So you get right away that this is unusual. They're being called to meet in the wee um, hours of the day, basically at night. Secrecy, all this stuff going on because they, they have Jesus now. And, and kind of we got to pause here for just a moment um, to think about what's going on because there's a bit of irony or something different here than we might otherwise think, right? The Sanhedrin, we're, you know, we'll say more about who they are, but think about who they are. But before we get there, think about Jesus for a minute. Jesus, in our view, 
is God taken on flesh. And he comes amongst us as a preacher and teacher, as a healer, as one who's going to uh, talk about God's kingdom, is ultimately going to embody God's kingdom, but as a carpenter, as one who doesn't have a lot of means, all of this, but he's God taken on flesh. And it's not the sinners who are the ones who kill him, who are going to condemn him. It's this group of people who are known to be the pious ones. They're the ones who are supposed to be the people, the religious people, the people full of wisdom and all of this. They're the ones who cannot see who he is. We begin to ask the question, well, what's going on? Why, why, why don't they see? These are the people known to be religious and prayerful and people that are supposed to be seeking God's ways and all this, and they don't see any of it. And some would say it's their, their love of power. Their love of authority and wanting to hold on to that is, is what's blinding them. And so they come after Jesus, accusing him of blasphemy, of blasphemy against himself, right? That he's claiming to be God when he's not and all of this. And, and it's not just that. Then they go on and they treat him mercilessly, right? They spat upon him. They blindfold him and begin to mock him and point him and saying, well, who just hit you? And all this kind of stuff. So they're hitting him while he's blindfolded and all of this. They beat him. And then they hand him over to the guards to beat him some more. And part of the question is, okay, wait, wait. This, this is the community, the religious community. These are the main leaders. These are the people that are supposed to be the pious, wise leaders. And this is how they're treating him? I mean, like, even if, even if they thought he's a false prophet, this is how they're going to treat him? That's what they're doing. And we start to think, okay, what is going on with this? Why is all this happening? And I want to suggest that ultimately the answer to that is fear. They're fearful of losing their power, their privilege, their social order. They're hearing, they're seeing the crowds like they saw on Sunday, which we'll celebrate next week with Palm Sunday, this big commotion and palm branches and all this stuff being thrown out. Look at all this commotion. And people are beginning to say things like, oh, what is this, a new authority? They're hearing all of that and they're fearful about it in lots of different ways. Part of it is being fearful for their own, for their own hides, right? Because they're like, Caiaphas is ultimately is going to say, you know, he's basically saying, what if the Romans now get all worked up over what this rebellion or what Jesus is doing? They're going to come and lay it on us. Better this one guy die than all of us get hurt. And that's not a hard argument to make, right? He gets lots of following with it as he goes around and says this to the others in the Sanhedrin. And they're all with it. And this is the way it works, right? Oftentimes we have fear. This is through history. We have fear that leads ultimately to hate, that leads to some kind of violence. See it again and again. And there's part of this story that's not ultimately even just about this night. It's about the human condition. As we continue our own Lenten journeys, I think part of the question for us is to ask, where are we in that? To what extent do we let fear rule who we are? And what do we do with that? You know, and through the ages, we see we as a people have oftentimes, I think, given in to lots of kinds of different ways of fear. You can look through all the American history and see lots of big examples, right? Whether it's the Salem witch trials of 1692 or the Red Scare of 1952 or in our own age, 9-11. All the different ways that we react as a people out of fear. And then we start to think, well, what about us as individuals, right? How fear can dominate us. Where we make decisions that are ultimately based out of fear. I don't want to go there because I'm going to get hurt. 
I don't want to do this or, or whatever. I don't want to, I mean, how many times have people said, I'm never going to love again because I don't want to get hurt? I had lunch with a guy this week who said that. He had just been gone through a breakup, and he's like, oh, I'm, not, I'm not even going to date anymore. Like, okay, he's going to come back. But we have lots of ways, right, that we let, I mean, fear is a powerful thing. We don't want to get hurt. And it's a good thing, right? There's a measure of fear that's good. It's self-preservation. But it's when we let it lead and dominate us, right? And people know this. Politicians use it all the time. We've talked about this, how they'll use fear, saying, we got this big fearful thing. You need to let me in, into power because I'll protect you from that. Or sadly, I think, at times, preachers have themselves used this, right? You know, turn or burn and, you know, you got to do this or that because there's fear all over the place. But that's ultimately, I don't think, what God's about. We heard it in our first reading today, that perfect love drives out fear. And our question, I think, on, on the decisions that we make is to ask the question, how do, if we go and come into some decision we're making, always asking, how do I make the decision that makes me most secure? Rather than asking the question of how do we engage in the most love in the world, we go, we go to different places. But our default, so often, is self-preservation and the fear that's going to take us in some place. And we can get all warped up. And I've been there. I know what it is. I mean, I, we all deal with this. We can hold on to our fears in life and never go to a healthy place because we're fearful of getting hurt. And if you're honest, you know, wherever you are, you may never love deeply if you've been hurt too much and you don't want to go deeper because what if someone betrays me? What if this happens or that happens? But God calls us to let his love go deeper, to set aside fear, let it have its place, but not let it dominate how we live and what we're about. And I wonder on this day in the Sanhedrin, if there wasn't one person sitting there thinking, oh, you know, this doesn't feel right. We, ha we don't have in the record anybody stepping up, right? Joseph of Arimathea. But apart from that, do we have anybody in this that, that doesn't step up? And I think it's a different game, right? When you're the one person against a majority, it becomes very scary to be the upstander and go against it, right? And again, we see lots of examples on this. I, I think about the, uh, the German uh, Lutheran pastor, who's uh, a quote is attributed to, where he talks about how um, when all the stuff began in Nazi Germany, Martin Niemöller um, said this. He waited. He didn't protest. He didn't object until way, 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 way down the road. And the quote that's attributed to him, some of y'all have heard this, but he says this, First they came for the communists, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a communist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak up because I wasn't a Jew. Then they came for the Roman Catholics, and I didn't speak up because I was a Protestant. And then they came for me, and by that time there was no one left to speak up. And this idea that we can let fear keep us down where we, we don't even go there. There's a saying attributed to Edmund Burke. There's questions about whether it's really his saying or not. But this idea that all evil needs to triumph is for good people to remain silent. And this idea, and on this day, we get, we get that here. We don't, there's nobody speaking up. No one speaks up that says, no, let's, let's not go there, right? And that's the, we're not talking about people just stepping up to say, oh, that's wrong or that's sinful to some individual. Because, I mean, that's not, that's obnoxious. That's not being an upstander. But when we talk about a group that's doing something and you've got that voice in you saying, this just didn't right. What if somebody in the Sanhedrin had just started it, had stood up and said, guys, we're meant to be God followers and this just doesn't feel right. 
You know, whatever we think, we're not going to treat this guy this way, or whatever else that goes on with it. What if that had happened? So one of our exercises, I think, for us in Lent, as we go further, I'm going to switch gears here, but one of the things is, what do we do with fears? Are we, do we have whole blocks of, of our lives where fear and not love is leading the way? And what's that doing to us and God's kingdom and the work he calls us to? is something for us to reflect on. And it happens in individual relationships and it happens in society. And surely, I think, as we look around at the bigger things, what things are we not wanting to voice up to because we're scared the majority is going to run us over? But God is, keeps whispering in our ear, don't, don't just let that slide by. Things for us to contemplate and pray about and think about during the season of Lent. Well, there are a couple of other things going on here. I mean, it's interesting to look at Jesus' prosecution at this point, right? Under Jewish law, they had, they had to have two witnesses that were going to agree on the truth of something before they could condemn somebody. And so they've got Jesus there, and they're trying to get all these witnesses. We heard about it in our reading. And they don't have two witnesses that are lining up doing what they're, they're meant to do. And after a while, I think Caiaphas, the high priest, just finally turns to Jesus and says, let's just ask him, are you the Messiah? And Jesus could have just been silent, and this moment would have passed. He could have just been quiet, and it would have passed. But he didn't. He answers up, and he says that, and he gives, like, it's not a long statement, but it's a super um, powerful statement of what he says. And it's, I think it's bigger than most of us realize what he says in it. Because he, he really, he says this thing that looks like sort of one big long sentence, maybe two. But it's got three really big punches in it from the Old Testament um, as to what's going on. The first of which is he starts out by saying, or they say, are you the Messiah? He starts out by saying, I am, period. And you get this whole thing about how 1,200 years before this in Exodus when Moses encounters the burning bush and has that whole exchange with the burning, and, and it, God says, I am. Or if we're going to try to add words to it, Yahweh, this personal name for God, it comes I am. And Jesus starts out by saying, I am. I mean, he's just straight up saying that. And so it's got this notion with it of saying I am. He could have answered it a lot of other ways. But this part has got this notion of him being something connected with God the Father. There's some kind of special relationship connection with God the Father. It's a little bit like John's prologue, linking the two together. This I am is saying that there's, there's some kind of something bigger going on with that. And then he doesn't, he doesn't stop there, right? There are two other things he's going to say as he goes into this. One of which is he says, he goes on, he says, And you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And you hear that and you think, okay, well, he's just kind of saying stuff. But he's, to, these, to the Sanhedrin, to the religious leaders, this would immediately call to them Daniel 7. And I'm going to read Daniel 7 because we don't know it by memory. But it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, this line that Jesus just quoted. And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people, every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. That's the second part of what Jesus answers. He's, he's bringing up that particular image and saying, okay, I am, and this image we've had from Daniel 7, the Messiah, I'm bringing that to mind as well. And he doesn't stop there. He's got one more to go, because he, he goes on to say, talk about being seated 
at the right hand of power, which is drawing up to mind uh, a psalm that Jesus has quoted before, and I'll say more in a minute, but Psalm 110, which says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. I mean, Jesus, I mean, like right now, he's sort of calling the Sanhedrin his footstool right in front of him. The Lord sends out from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your foes. Your people will offer themselves willingly on the day you lead your forces on the holy mountains. From the womb of the morning like dew, your youth will come to you. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Malchadesiac. Jesus has used this passage two other times, and he's saying he's attributing this to him. And, he, and this idea that he's in the same vein as this Malchadesiac figure. And for those of you who, don't, who are putting on your Old Testament hats, trying to remember, okay, I heard that name before. It's in the Psalms. You hear it in different places. That was the king who's, the, the, Malchadesiac really means the king of righteousness, who if you remember when Abraham and his, and his folks go out and beat his enemy, he shows up as this king and priest who brings bread and wine, prefiguring the Eucharist and all this uh, before Abraham, king of righteousness. And Jesus is saying in part, this, this is it, this is me as well. He gets all of that in that little short statement. You get three different things out of that little short statement. That he's the Messiah, that he's God's elect, and that he's got this special relationship with God the Father. They've got this thing going on. All three of those things are going on all in that one moment. And these guys, these guys are done, right, at this point. They're, as soon as they heard the I am, they're already saying, we, we don't need to hear any more witnesses. He just did it right in front of all of us. And so they condemn him. And the two parts we're not going to go in today, but this is where we're going to leave it, is they're going to pass him off now to the, to the political occupiers, the political power. They're going to take it up with, with the Roman authorities now and move him over there to do the final bits and the final part of moving on to killing him. And we'll hear this when we get to Good Friday here in a couple of weeks. Um, and then the other part about this is Peter's betrayal and what comes on with that and where it goes. And we're going to talk about that in a few weeks in our next sermon series. We're going to have a day where we're going to come back and look at Peter on this. So there, there are lots of stuff for us to think about in all this. I, I hope you'll meditate on this place of fear and love in your lives and you'll think about um, all the different ways that we sometimes succumb and let, get led the wrong way by this. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you love us, you know us, and you still love us. That's your grace. As we continue our Lenten journey, help us to see the many ways that we have not been upstanders, that we've not stood up against the forces of evil in the world, but have succumbed out of fear or whatever else. And Lord, we give you thanks on this day for the many burdens and wounds that you have borne on our behalf. We're mindful of some of those on this day as we think about the abuse you faced in front of the Sanhedrin. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.